episode three i'm kenny and i'm here with heather yeah we did it <laughs> third time's the charm okay so today we're going to be looking at an italian motion picture called tenebrae uh, from 1982 directed by dario argento the master of giallo cinema we'll talk a little bit more about what that is in a second it was released in 1982. The standard quote-unquote English language title used today, Tenebrae, with the A-E on the end, is actually a Latin word, pronounced Tenebrae in Latin, meaning darkness. The Italian title is the same word in Italian, so spelled with just the E on the end. It was originally released in the U.S. under the title Unsane, which is quite a stupid title if you ask me, so I'm glad they changed <laughs> it to the cool-sounding Latin title instead. Um, you can tell how much I like cool-sounding Latin titles from the title of this podcast. Uh, by the way, uh, to all the people who have been pointing out in the comments that the title of this podcast is actually bad Latin, I am fully aware of that fact. Uh, the preposition ex, of course, takes the ablative case, so it ought to be Cinematicon ex mortibus, not ex mortis. So thank you to everyone for pointing that out. But, I didn't hear about this. Hmm. Yeah, it's a big, uh, big hullabaloo in the comments there. Um, I want to. I want to see that. I want to hear about this. Okay. I'm, I was lying. <laughs> I, I admit it. You lied. Nobody pointed it out. But. Oh my god. I did want to address for all the Latinists out there that I am aware of the bad Latin, but I decided to deliberately break the grammatical rules of a dead language rather than spoil the Evil Dead illusion I was going for there. But that's a, that's a sidebar. Um, so the movie we're watching, or that we watched uh, for this week... Yeah, uh, I'm was not watching it again. Um, that's a good idea, actually. Maybe we could do the same one no, next week and no, just watch I'm, it again. I'm okay, thanks, though. That's sweet, but no. So it was written and directed by Dario Argento, uh, the director of many horror classics, including Suspiria, Deep Red, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, and Phenomena and starring his then-girlfriend, Daria Nicolodi. Um, and they are the parents of actress-director Asia Argento, who has been much in the news recently. You may have heard about some of that, Heather. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't even make the connection. Yeah, so both of her oh, parents wow. were involved in this movie. And her parents are named Dario and Daria. Uh, uh. <laughs> so there you go. Okay. So now you know that. Um, mm -hmm. It also stars John Saxon, whom horror fans will recognize as the dad in A Nightmare on Elm Street, as the uh, agent character, the literary agent. And the American actor Anthony Franchosa stars as the protagonist. Like many Italian films, the dialogue was not recorded on set, but it was dubbed in post instead. Many actors spoke their lines in English on set and then dubbed themselves in the studio. So a lot of the time, the fact that it's dubbed is pretty inconspicuous in the English language version. 
The awesome Italian prog rock band Goblin had scored Argento's previous films Deep Red and Suspiria. They had broken up by 1982 when this film came out, but three of the four band members collaborated on this score. So while they're credited individually instead of as Goblin, it is still pretty much another Goblin score. We're going to do a plot synopsis to start with, um, and we've done spoiler warnings for the previous episodes, but I have to say this is probably our spoileriest episode ever because this movie is a murder mystery, so you really should just go and watch it now. Um, I, I think Heather probably didn't like it too much. Is that accurate? It's okay. I didn't hate it, but okay. I just... So a ringing endorsement from Heather and another one from me. <laughs> I love this film. It's one of my favorites. So I do recommend that you go uh, and check it out before listening to this podcast because we will spoil who done it. Um, but here's a little plot summary for you. Anthony Franchosa plays Peter Neal, a famous American author of violent detective novels who visits Rome during a book tour supporting his wildly successful new novel titled Tenebrae. He brings with him a personal assistant, Anne, played by Dario Nicolotti, and an agent, Bulmer, played by John Saxon. Arriving in his hotel room, Peter is confronted by police detectives Germani and Altieri, who notify him that a woman has been found murdered, with pages from his new book shoved down her throat. Peter also discovers a letter apparently written to him by the killer containing a quotation from the book, indicating that the murder, and those to follow, are a kind of twisted tribute to him from a fan. Over the rest of the film, Peter tries to figure out who the killer is, while people around him keep getting picked off. So, uh, what did you think of this one, Heather? Uh, mm, <laughs> I, you know how I always want to say like positive things about stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I really liked the like imagery and stuff. Um, uh, overall, I found it kind of confusing yeah you, you mentioned that yeah it's upsetting to me that we can't like talk about stuff anymore <laughs> we have to like save it for the podcast so we can't like have a discussion like we used to so that's you know well this is the discussion let's do it now. i know but now i can't like ask dumb questions <laughs> no ask dumb questions come on um okay so i just I really had trouble like following the story when I was watching it. And I was just like, I, Oh man. Okay. So we can spoil shit. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to happen. Mm-hmm. All right. So I kind of had a feeling from the beginning that Peter Neal was the killer. Mm-hmm. I just got that sense. I know that that's like shitty because it's supposed to be like a big, you know, plot twist whatever but i just i kind of was getting the feeling and there's like all these like dream sequences that he has like flashbacks about this woman in the red shoes yeah so you picked and up I, right I away just, that those were his dreams i yeah i did but it, it also was confusing at the same time it was like what is this like is this a dream is this a flashback like who is she? Did this really happen? Is this a fantasy? You know, I didn't really understand what was going on. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So that's part of the mystery. That's not really explained until the very last scene. Yeah. Well, I didn't like that. <laughs> I didn't love it. And then the the red shoes kind of show up again, you know, with his, that's his ex-wife, right? That 
woman with the dark hair. Yes. So we should maybe say, um, like a lot of good uh, detective stories, there are a lot of characters in this whose main function is to be a sort of red herring, right? Like we're set up to think, oh, Jane must be the killer because we find out that she is has come to Rome to sort of stalk uh, Peter. And so it's like, okay, mm -hmm. she's doing some kind of weird business. And then near the end of the film, she calls Anne um, and asks her to come over mm -hmm. and tells her that she wants to apologize for all the things that she's done, that she feels like she's one person some of the time and another person another part of the time. A lot of things that you could read as, okay, she's got this double personality. She's a psycho killer. And then she asks Anne to come over and then we see her pull out a gun and wait with a drawn gun okay. for Anne to come. So we think, okay, she knows that uh, Peter is having a relationship with Anne and she's going to murder her. So she's really set up to be like, we think she's the killer. But then, of course, what happens instead is that an axe flies through the window and chops her arm off. Mm -hmm. And uh, it turns out that Peter Neal, the author, was the killer. And I, I feel like... Um... Jane, her name is, right? Yeah. The dark-haired, her the ex-wife. Mm -hmm. I feel like she has the best death in the whole movie. Yeah, that is an amazing death sequence. It's really I love good. It. The arterial spray, uh, just painting the walls with her blood. Yes. That's yes. so brutal. Mm -hmm. And that's part of uh, the genre that this film is in. So, have you heard of the Jalo? No, I'm I'm really not familiar with this at all. Yeah, so um, you may have thought that I was talking about a kind of iced cream, but in fact, that's called gelato. I was um, not, but I, I'm not that stupid, but thanks, go on. Giallo instead is, literally, it's the Italian word that means yellow. Um, and uh, in Italy, in the 1920s, a major book publisher came out with an imprint of cheap paperback murder mysteries and they all had this bright yellow uh binding so that i guess stuck around for a long time and it became really uh ubiquitous and so the term giallo came to just mean a thrilling murder mystery story um and then in the movies the giallo sort of genre got started with the films of mario bava in the early 60s. So the first one ever was The Girl Who Knew Too Much, uh, a play on the Alfred Hitchcock, Man Who Knew Too Much. And uh, he went on to make uh, Blood and Black Lace and a bunch of other jolly. And uh, what sort of differentiates this from suspense films made in other countries is they are horror films. So they really emphasize the gory deaths. There's often a lot of gore a lot of uh, sexuality in these films. They're sort of, they're more extreme than American or British films from the same period would ever be. And in fact, Tenebrae uh, became one of the infamous video nasties, films that were uh, banned in Britain on video. So you could only get them on, on the black market through the 1980s mm -hmm. because of the death scenes that were like what we're talking about. Um, some other features of the genre in a giallo, we always see scenes with the killer and, but we don't see the face so that we don't know who it is. And the killer always wears black leather gloves, like these exact gloves that the killer has. And whenever we see him in this film, 
that's in every Jalo film. And there's often mm-hmm. point of view shots from the perspective of the killer where we hear sort of heavy breathing on the score. The Jalo is really important for the horror genre in general because it was a big influence on the slasher. So those early slashers like uh, Black Christmas and Halloween um, were taking a lot from the Jalo. Um, the mysterious killer who has a mask, who we don't see the face. We get the point of view shots from the perspective of the killer, and then we reveal who it is at the end, blah, blah, blah. The, the series of inventive, gory kills, um, all this stuff. Okay, so I have a question. Here's a, you said I can ask dumb questions. Let's just do it. Yeah. Um, so Peter Neal has this like young guy as his like assistant. Johnny. In Italy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... Remember they go to the house of the like news anchor guy who's been like making references to Peter Neal's book and they think he's like a suspect, right? Yes. Okay, so they go to his house and And it turns out he is the killer. He did like some of the murders. Yeah, so we've been saying that um the main character Peter Neal is the killer. That's only partly true. So we find out at the end that Peter Neal turned out to actually be a good detective which this is another thing in the giallo uh film that often is the case is that there's like you know a serial killer and a murder investigation and the main character is not a cop it's like an ordinary person often an american who traveled to italy for some reason um and that person ends up solving the crime when that the the cops can't solve so here peter neal as we would expect figures out who did it and then he realizes he can use that as an opportunity to get rid of people that he doesn't like. In particular, his ex-wife, Jane, and uh, his agent, Bulmer, who's having an affair with her. And so he kills the killer, Dexter style, and then uh, kills Jane and Bulmer, but then he also has to kill Johnny because Johnny knows too much. Okay, so Johnny witnesses well who they think the killer is at the time being murdered yeah and he yeah. is the, he is the killer okay so they witness the killer being murdered he doesn't really see who does it you know there's it's very vague and whatever and he runs back to peter to find him unconscious mhm so peter hit himself in the head with a rock yeah okay yeah, that's just wanted that's, to be clear on that. I think that's the one sequence in the film that I don't think makes complete sense because how did mm-hmm. Peter get all the way from I mean, right. he has like 10 seconds in between yeah. when Johnny last looks over at him and when he's got to be putting the axe in Cristiano Berti's head. Um mm-hmm. so that doesn't entirely make sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um but it's really just a a timing thing. Like he they could have added in another 10 seconds for him to run over there. Um, yeah. And pretty much everything else in the movie, I think, makes perfect sense, which is amazing for an Italian film. Italian movies well, tend to not make any sense. Okay. In so, part, like, uh, if you look at Dario Argento's previous two films, Suspiria and Inferno, which who knows, maybe one day we will, um, neither of those films make much of any sense. It's just like a series of unfortunate events happening to beautiful young women. Let's talk about the music. What did you think of the music in this movie? I have several notes about music. Um, I really love the opening 
see like the music sequence in the in the you know the opener it's a lot different than the score hmm. do you know what i'm talking about there's like an opening song that's like really cool <laughs> it's like very 80s and i loved it yeah so i think probably our listeners will have heard that i'm, I'm going to use one of the songs as the intro music for this episode okay um, okay because just putting my cards on the table this is my favorite horror movie score of all time um i have it really? on itunes i listen to it all the time i've heard all these songs a million times um, i had no idea if i was ever going to be like a wwf wrestler and i need a song to like play <laughs> as i came out i would totally pick uh one of these tracks okay well and yeah, they're, yeah they're very really 80s very synth I mean, I feel like the opening song was a lot more 80s than the rest of the score. It was different. Um, but I really did like the score. They used a lot of creepy organ music, mm-hmm. which I love for horror movies. If you put, like, creepy organ music, I'm just going to be kind of, like, hypnotized by that and think it's a great horror movie, even if it sucks. Yeah. Like, I love it. So, yeah, I, I noticed the score many times, and I really liked it. Yeah, I love the main theme. It's so cool how it's like the main riff that's playing over is in 5-4, but the drum track is in 4-4. So every mm-hmm. time it like alternates which beat is being accented. And it just gives it this off-kilter, really cool vibe. Um, like it might sound chaotic the way I'm describing it, but it's not. But it's just like it's it, make, it gives it this uh, unpredictable sort of flair it's really cool mm-hmm. totally i think most people aren't like music nerds like you but it i feel like if you do anything like that where it's kind of it's offbeat like that a little bit it makes you just a little bit unsettled yeah even if you don't like cognitively pick up on it 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 does a really good job of like subconsciously like making you uncomfortable yeah but i think the music here and this is something that applies to a lot of italian movies too like italian horror movies from this period um it's not really what you would expect from a horror movie score certainly nowadays like horror movie music now is a lot more like ambient um and even at that time you you might look at like the shining um like the music there is just like this sort of cacophonous background thing that just like will uh, slowly swell up during the really scary sequences um and it's just very um like atonal um and doesn't ha- it definitely doesn't have a beat to it whereas Ooh. this music is like it's it's jamming man like it's re- it really like gets your toe tapping um and that's kind of a weird mood to be in while you're watching somebody get murdered um like you're it's like almost getting you hyped for it okay I mean, there are creepy tracks, too, like the the one that plays during the uh, dream sequences is. Oh, yeah. Is like a more of a creepy sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And those, by the way, those dream sequences are the only sequences in the film other than the murder sequences that have music. There's no music anywhere in the movie unless somebody's about to get killed. Interesting. Yeah. So I think that's kind of like a neat thing, like the movie is kind of priming you to get scared when you hear the music um kind of like uh jaws famously did that where you know every time you hear the Mm -hmm. the shark Mm -hmm. is coming and then so when they they don't do it when he's just like 
uh, shoveling the chum off the back of the boat, and then suddenly the shark, you know, comes up behind him. It's like this huge shock because you've been like trained, like Pavlov's dog, to just know that you're not going to see the shark unless you hear the song first. Yeah, it's brilliant. Another interesting thing with the music is during the scene where the book critic and her yeah. ex-lover are murdered, um, it turns out that the song that's playing is, is diegetic. Like, it's in the world of the film because uh, Tilda starts shouting, uh, turn off the music! And then she actually does turn off the music and the score turns off at that point. Um, interesting. Yeah, so that's kind of like a like an interesting moment where the film is kind of playing with what's part of the film world and what isn't and sort of like reminding us that you know hey you're hearing scary music right now like pay attention to what we're doing which i guess ties into like one of the major themes of the film which is i mean this is a really like metafictional film and in that way i think it's a really good pairing with uh, misery the first movie that we watched so they're both movies about writers who have to deal with like crazy fans appropriating mm-hmm. their work. So um, uh, in Misery, you've got Annie Wilkes, who also both movies are the title is the name of the book, right? So Misery is mm-hmm. the book series that Paul Sheldon writes in Misery and Tenebrae is the book that Peter Neal writes in Tenebrae. And they write these books and then fans sort of take it to this really crazy place. In this case, um, a crazed fan is sort of acting out the murders that are described in the novel Tenebrae, um, using the same weapon and targeting women, which I guess happens as well in the book. Um, And the character in the book is obsessed with trying to eliminate human perversity by killing people that he thinks of as like perverse or promiscuous and when the killer who we don't realize yet is the killer when cristiano berti um interviews peter neal briefly he he says something like so your book is about you know the need to eliminate perversity in our world or something like the problem that the problem of perversity and peter's like uh no not not really. And he's like, well, but the killer says here, and he's like, yeah, but the killer's the bad guy. Did you, did Uh you get that? Um, Uh and the, the only real aberrant behavior in the book, and then he gets cut off. But I mean, what he's about to say is the real aberrant character is the killer, not the people he's killing. Um, so I think, you know, the movie is interested in how we are in the audience are interpreting it and other movies that Argento has made in which crazed killers, you know, kill women. He's been accused of being a misogynist and of encouraging violent behavior. And Peter Neal, likewise, is accused of that. He's got this fan who sort of is killing based on his his book. And then he's got uh, Tilda, who's an old acquaintance of his and who is in the modern parlance, we might say an SJW. She angrily accuses him Mm -hmm. of being sexist because these books have male heroes and they're all about these uh, beautiful women getting murdered. And that's an accusation that has been leveled at Argento as well. So what do you what do you make of all that, Heather? I mean, I have a note about that. 
I thought it was really cool that it was kind of self-aware mm-hmm. almost, you know? Um, and I was kind of interested to see where it went with that. And I wasn't super impressed with what they did with it. Um, I feel like in the end, Anne ultimately killed Peter Neal, right? But it was an accident. Uh, yeah. So in the final scene of the film, uh, Peter gets caught by the detective. Um, and in order to avoid getting arrested, he pretends to kill himself with, uh, like a fake razor that shoots out fake blood. He pretends to slit his throat. They leave him there lying on the floor. And then the detective realizes his mistake, runs back in to find that Peter's gone. He sneaks up behind him and axes him. And then, uh, Anne, uh, runs in after the detective. Peter's getting ready to kill her. But in opening the door, she knocks over this like elaborate, like modern art piece. That's like a bunch of metal cones stacked on top of each other. And one of the like razor sharp metal cones that makes up this uh, sculpture goes right through uh, Peter's chest, impaling him. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Did you feel like that spoke to that? theme at all i i feel like it did but it it didn't do well enough Hmm. i feel like it shouldn't have been an accident i would have liked her to have actually killed him herself on purpose Hmm. not like you know in some kind of slapstick comedy move not that it was arranged to be funny but you know what i mean yeah well some people have pointed out that in that scene peter is literally killed by art so you know, the whole film is about the sort of violent potential of art. And then in the end, the artist is killed by art. So mm-hmm. maybe that's part of what the film's trying to say. But what you're suggesting that we would have like a female killer at the end, you know, like the, the woman sort of take over the, the violent potential that men have been using for the whole movie. Um, well, I think... I don't think I don't think she should have killed him because like she wanted to. I think she should have killed him out of self-defense and it still would have been enough. Yeah. Well, and that is one way that people have defended some slasher movies of the charge of being sort of sexist or conservative. So Carol J. Clover has a book, Men, Women and Chainsaws, Gender in the Modern Horror Film, um, that I think... Uh, considers this sort of argument that in the slasher movie, you do have this male killer, oftentimes, not always, like Friday the 13th, spoiler alert, killing a bunch of female victims. But by the end, you always have a final girl. So there's always one woman who survives and in the end has to sort of take up this uh, phallic weapon like a knife or a gun and use that to kill the killer and so in a way it's a kind of like female empowerment thing but it's also kind of disturbing that the woman has to sort of take up the male aggressive role in order to become mm-hmm. empowered um, and this film kind of doesn't do that at all um, which I think if Argento's goal had been to refute 
the accusations of sexism of people like Tilda in real life, then, you know, he might have done something like that. He might have had the killer be a woman and the victims be men or something like that. Um, but in a lot of ways, this is sort of like a by the numbers jalo in terms of gender. And that's part of what I think is really kind of interesting is it really kind of doesn't seem to me that Argento is trying to exonerate himself from the charges that have been leveled against him and his sort of genre. Um, because, you know, Peter Neal really is nuts, <laughs> right? If he's the stand-in for Argento, for people who work in this, in this uh, genre, then that's not a great look, I would have to say, right? Like he is uh, somebody who has these deep-seated violent sexual urges that go back to this uh, sort of primal moment of sexual humiliation that we see in the flashbacks that he's sort of like helplessly acting out. Um, or I, I guess he's sort of, um, he's repressed that for a long time, but then once he hears about this series of murders, it sort of unleashes that within himself. Mm -hmm. But his, his books, it seems like, are an expression of something that he's otherwise repressed about himself, a sort of like deep-seated misogyny. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, I, that might be my reading of the film, that it's kind of like one of those movies like Funny Games, where the argument of the film seems to be, don't watch movies like this. <laughs> like, there's something wrong with you if you like these movies. So I don't know what okay. it says about me that I... I still like it, <laughs> even though that's my, my reading of it. I don't think you want me to make that analysis. <laughs> you mentioned the visuals. Mm -hmm. So how would you describe the look of the film? Well, it's very bright. Yeah. There's a lot of use of like very bright colors. And that's another reason why I, I like the title, Tenebrae, because it means darkness. Darkness. So yes. it's it's ironic because this is a movie where... Even in scenes where we see the killer put out the lights, it's still perfectly, everything's visible. It's like, you know, broad daylight. Um, yeah, there's a couple murders that happen in broad daylight. Yeah. With people around. Mm hmm Yeah. So, so that's interesting. Yeah, Bulmer is killed right out in the open. Yeah, the way that the scenes are, are lit is, you know, it's very... Uh, unusual for a horror movie you'd expect to totally. have a lot more of like you know dark corners and you know places where oh the killer could jump out from there or from there um but this film manages to you know have that that terror and that suspense and that feeling that the killer could be anywhere without relying on that um that's another aspect of the giallo is like very stylish very colorful visuals um so dario argento in particular is known for that um his movie suspiria was the last movie ever processed in technicolor before they shut the plant down and it's like renowned for the the amazing color in it mm -hmm. um and yeah I, I love the color in this yeah another thing that i think adds to the disturbingness of the sort of the theme of the audience as complicit with these murders and with the misogyny of the killer is the uh the pov shots from the perspective of the killer 
like I said, that's a staple of the genre. But here it's like extra weird because we're we've been sort of primed to think about in what sense we're sort of complicit with what's happening. And then we also get these like amazing sort of POV shots or not POV shots, I'm not sure, where there's like the killer seems to be almost omniscient. So I'm thinking about um, I guess I'm thinking about this scene a lot. The the scene where the lesbians are killed. Um, we get this amazing crane shot that starts in uh, Tilda's room and then it goes out the window. Then it climbs along the wall. It goes up onto the ceiling and then it comes around to the other side and we end up looking at Marion, um, her ex-girlfriend. And mm -hmm. it it's like, uh, the you know, it's like almost makes you feel like the killer can just go anywhere and do anything. It's kind of like um, uh, David Fincher's camera moves where it's like aided by CGI, the camera can like go through things and go through walls and stuff. I don't know. There's like a fantasy element to it, which is kind of sick. Sure. Yeah. Any other, any stuff that you did not like about the movie other than the confusing plot? Um, no, I mean, if it had been like more linear, I would have really liked it. Mm. Like there's a lot of things about it that I really like. So if it had just been like easier to follow, I wouldn't have had a problem, but I feel like there's a lot of unnecessary things. Like I kind of feel like the ex-wife and all that stuff is kind of clunky. Mm. You know what I mean? I really just think they could have done that just more seamless and I don't know. I really feel like that whole ex-wife and the affair with the book, what's he called, a book agent or whatever. It was kind of, I don't know. It, it just didn't seem to really need to be there. Oh, but it, I mean, it's his whole motivation for becoming the killer. I guess, but then <laughs> what was the point of having relations with his assistant and then blah, blah, blah. It's like, what 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 does he really want? Hmm. Do you feel like Peter kind of doesn't really hold together as a character? No. I feel like his motivation is messy. Yeah. Yeah. So it might be a case of like a twist that doesn't fully work. Like, I feel like there's, you know, there's two kinds of twist endings. Like there's a twist ending that makes you go, oh and then there's a twist ending that makes you go what yeah see i'm the latter <laughs> yeah so like you felt like the twist actually made things earlier in the film no. not make sense yeah i really did and i was just like what do you i mean like i said i always had that inkling that he was the killer but mm -hmm. i didn't buy his motivation you know i mean i guess it it you know it let you know later on that he had had this incident when he was young with the woman in the red shoes and the whatever. Mm -hmm. And he had never really, he'd, he'd always been like fucked up after that and had, you know, been twisted in the head and whatever. But I just, I, I didn't buy the fact that he had any sort of attachment to his ex-wife at all. Hmm. So that yeah, they don't really was, hint too much at that. Right. So that didn't make any sense to me. I was like, what? Like, 
He doesn't give a shit about her. He's never mentioned her. He's never thought about her. He's never talked about her. We also don't know that he knows about her affair with Bulmer. Right. Or how he knows well, about like, that. I mean, obviously he did thing... since he kills them both. Right. But that whole thing just seems out of character to me. Hmm. But I guess that's, I mean, that's part of what the movie's doing, though, is like, we think we know him but we actually mm -hmm. don't the way that those flashback scenes are shot is really interesting the way that it's just like a series of close-ups on parts of people's bodies like we rarely see anybody's whole body we just see the the feet or we see um the boys just their their legs right when um mm -hmm. The woman, the mystery woman, is is on her knees, and they're all standing around her. We just see like a series of, you know, identical khaki slacks standing around her. I don't know what what effect does that have. The only thing it reminded me of was the movie Nine. I don't know if you've seen it. The animated movie? No, never mind. Don't worry about it. Is there like a a musical with Daniel Day Lewis by that name? Yes. There's like a scene in that movie where he has like this flashback to like his childhood mm -hmm. and he's got almost like this fetish now because of it and he keeps trying to recreate it like mm. later on in his life. Yeah, so it, it, it does, I think, it fetishizes certain things, yes. particularly the shoes. Yes. Right. Um, it also... I don't know. It makes me think of like being a child where like you see people a lot of the time, like uh, it takes effort to look up and see somebody's face. So you see like the right. lower halves of people. You see exactly. hands, that's you how, see legs. That's, that's how I describe my dad when I was little because my dad's six foot four. So he's like this really tall man. And all my memories of him when I'm a child are like of his knees down. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I feel like that's very realistic. Yeah. So it puts you into that childish space, which is disturbing because these are like scenes of sex and murder. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. It's also kind of it's like dehumanizing too to like, you know, cut people into pieces. I mean, that's what the killer's going to end up doing. Um, Peter's going to end up hacking uh, Jane to bits with the axe. So maybe mm -hmm. there's some foreshadowing there that the camera sort of cuts people to pieces in his memory. Um, it's maybe like the way that a psychopath views the world. People are just like collections of body parts. Right. The beginning and ending of the movie are pretty interesting too. So um, it starts with the killer's POV with the, the black leather gloves. And he's reading out of uh, the book Tenebrae. And he throws the book onto a, a fireplace, and we watch it burn. So in a movie that's about how art has the potential to kill, it's actually the art that is destroyed at the beginning. We open with a scene of book burning. I don't really know mm -hmm. what to make of that. I, I don't know either. I mean, I really liked that sequence. It doesn't really do justice in the fact that it's like trying to be a foreshadowing into whatever's to come in the movie i feel like in a way it is but also it it 
it tells you nothing. Well, but the the killer has an interesting relationship with with Peter and his book, right? Because I mean, we first see him burning the book, but he's also obsessively reading out of it. And then mm-hmm. in his first murder, he takes pages out of the book and rips them out and shoves them down the throat of the victim. So he's making her eat that book. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's kind of weird. It's another scene. It's another scene where he sort of seems to be destroying it. And then one of his later messages to Peter, or is it to the police? I'm not sure, says that he's going to kill the great corrupter and the tv mm-hmm. newsman jokes that a, a lot of uh, politicians are going to be leaving town um worried that he's referring mm-hmm. to them but it's clearly peter that he's referring to as the great corrupter at least that's the way the characters take it so mm-hmm. he i guess also like annie wilkes in in misery has a kind of love-hate relationship with the uh, the auteur. He's obsessed with his work. He in some way wants to emulate what he's reading, but he doesn't really understand it. And he also feels compelled to do violence to the art and the artist. I don't know what to make of all that. And then the last shot of the film, it ends like, uh, have you seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Yes, we watched it together. Oh, really? Yes. Well, that has a that has like one of the all time great endings where um, the final girl is on the back of the truck. She's driving down the highway. She's escaped from Leatherface, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. she just starts screaming her head off. Like, <laughs> and we leave her. We go to credits when she's just in full freak out, and uh, Leatherface is like spinning around like a madman on the road. Mm-hmm, like, there's mm-hmm. no there's no denouement. There's no you know, uh, falling action. It's just like we leave the characters in. I mean, she's safe, so the conflict's been resolved, but it's clear that she's, like, been traumatized beyond belief and is just in full freak-out mode. And um, Mm -hmm. that's how we leave this film, too. Like, Anne is just screaming and screaming, and then it just cuts to credits. (laughs) I felt bad for her. Yeah, she's she's my favorite character. I love Anne. Okay, that's good. I just felt really... It feels realistic in that way. You know, like, what would you do if you were in a situation? You'd probably scream your head off, you know? Like, oh my god, that's horrifying. Yeah. So... But it's like the film doesn't give us time to process or hurt it time to process what's happened at all. It's just like, mm-hmm. there you go. Fuck you. <laughs> go away. <laughs> like, yeah. Movie's over, get out. Um, I feel. I mean, before she even went into the house and, you know, inadvertently finished him off, she was in the car, like, crying. Yeah, she's already extremely so distraught. So, she was already super fucked up. And then things got worse. So, yeah, the screaming seems about right to me. Sure, yeah. But, I mean, in a way, maybe it's uh, it's a perfect ending because as we've talked about this film really cracks open some really heady issues um things that we as an audience feel like uh oh we really need to 
process this stuff. We really need to think this through. Why are we watching mm-hmm. these kind of movies? Does it say something bad about us? Is there something kind of violent about uh, what we're doing? And then it doesn't resolve them, I, I don't think. I don't think it really has answers um, or at least exculpatory answers to these questions. And it just slams the door on us at the end. And it's like, <laughs> deal with it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, bye. Yeah. So I think you liked it. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed. Here's some more music. And <laughs> it's the end. <laughs> and, uh, and maybe that's, that's what keeps me coming back. You know, like there, there are movies that I really like, but where I feel like I have a, I have a handle on it. Like, um, mm-hmm. maybe someday we'll do, we've both, we watched, uh, the Babadook together a while ago. Oh, good one. Yeah. Yeah. And we will probably do an episode on that one eventually. Um, I'd but, love to do that one, but there's one where I feel like I pretty much get what the movie's about and what it's saying. Um, okay. But a lot of people don't. Sure. That's and, what I found out. And, and maybe this movie, maybe I'm being pessimistic. Maybe it does have something that it is clearly saying about violence and misogyny in horror movies. Um, and I just haven't found it yet, but because I haven't found it yet, I keep coming back to it. It keeps drawing me back in. Um, and then of course it's such a fun ride. So I guess that's it for this episode of Cinematicon Ex Mortis. Um, join us next time. We'll be watching the classic 1935 James Whale film, Bride of Frankenstein. But until then, enjoy some more swinging sounds of Tenebrae.